Welcome to the Table Leadership Podcast, where everyone is invited to pull up a seat, and all leaders have a voice to contribute to the conversation. We're glad you could join us today. And now, your host, Sian Edgerton. Good stuff. So, yeah, awesome. Well, then we can just jump right in. All right. Um, well, welcome, my dear, dear, dear friend. So excited to have you. Um, for everyone that's listening, I cannot tell you enough while well, listening or watching, I should say. Um, but I cannot express enough how much I love this woman, this incredible, powerful woman of God, who I think your personality and your nature and your gifting, Kim, is like the perfect um I, I want to say the polar opposite, but really the perfect compliment to mine, because every time I'm around you, you have just such this sweet, caring, compassionate, empathetic, genuine, nurturing spirit. And I always just feel like, oh, I want to be, I just want to be gentle and loving like Kim and not so harsh and abrasive. <laughs> but I cannot tell everyone how much I love you enough. And you you are someone who I just admire and look up to. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. And, and I know everybody's going to fall in love with you over the next 45 minutes like I have. Those words are so kind. Thank you so much. It's so good to be with you today. You know, we have a long history together. Yes. Through some uh, highlights in life and walking through some challenges. And so it's mm-hmm. really good to be with you in this, this good work that you're doing. Thanks. Yeah, I'm so excited. And I'm so excited to have you as a guest. Um, so Kim, for everybody that doesn't know you like I do, uh, take a second and introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you know who you are, where you're from, what you do, a little bit about your journey, whatever you think would be relevant for people to kind of get a picture of, of who you are. Okay. Uh, so my name is Kim Whetstone, and I live just outside of Chicago, and I actually live in a small town called West Chicago. So people are always like, is that the west side of Chicago? No, it's actually <laughs> a town called West Chicago, which is a few suburbs away. Uh, but it's a, a town that we moved to intentionally because of the large uh, immigrant and refugee population in this town. And so we live in a town where I would say, uh, you know, probably at least 75% of the people in our town, uh, Spanish is the first language. And we wanted to move here because we wanted our kids to be in a place where they would be equipped to engage with other people in the world. And so the mm-hmm. elementary school they go to, there are 26 different languages spoken. And my children themselves are biracial children. My husband is African-American. And we met when I was 16 years old in a small farming community. And that was a significant part of my journey because I learned for the first time that racism is something that is real. And so if I look at my ministry journey, it is in many ways shaped by that interaction with my husband. Because having my eyes open to the reality of racism meant that my engagement with the church was shaped through that lens. It Mm. meant that my engagement with culture was shaped through that lens. And so I spent time doing work in refugee resettlement and helping individuals who were coming from other countries who had experienced mass human rights violations and genocide, helping them adjust to life in the United States. Yeah. Um, and my husband and I then transitioned into doing residential ministry where we were in a home for homeless teen mothers and their children. 
and dealing with drug addiction as well as systemic injustice. Once again, my eyes initially being opened through my interaction with my husband really prepared me to do that work. And then from there, transitioned into church work for uh, eight years where I did work from recovery and helping people move out of addiction and also recovery from uh, sexual addiction to, in general, doing the good work of discipleship, which I believe recovery is exactly that, the good work of discipleship. But right now, I'm in the season of life where I'm using all of these things, all of these experiences that I've walked through to do coaching and consulting, uh, focusing specifically on women's empowerment and issues of diversity, but trying to help both men, women, churches, and organizations move into the fullness of who God has created them to be. Yeah, that's amazing. How long have you and Tucson been married? Oh my gosh. So uh, December 13th will be 16 years that have been married, but uh, it will be on that date, it will be, oh my gosh, 22 years since since our first date. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. And you guys have uh, two amazing, beautiful kids. Yes, we do. We have Isaiah, who is 10, and Isaiah loves to dance, and he taught himself to moonwalk when he was like three years old. Awesome. So he teaches me how to be carefree Mm. and just experience joy and be in the moment. My daughter, Sadie, who's 12, is a critical thinker and a problem solver, and she's also someone who is very, very courageous. A couple months ago, there was an audition for a musical at school. She hadn't practiced, didn't have a song ready, and just decided, I'm going to go audition. She got in the room, found out that it was an audition for Schoolhouse Rock. Couldn't remember all of Conjunction Junction, but (laughs) sang what she knew and auditioned just as she was. And every day through that courage and that I'm just going to come as who I am, she teaches me to be brave. So I'm so grateful for my kids. Mm, That's awesome. That's awesome. And what a testament to the intentional parenting and the way that you guys have just poured into and invested in and discipled your kids. It's, uh, it's inspiring. It is. Um, and so, all right, so I'm going to, the first question that I'm going to ask you is one that I ask everybody, um, because this is of course the table. And so if we were together and not, you know, over, um, technology right now, which I so wish we were, cause it's been quite a while since we've been in a room together. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if we were together live right now, and we were gathering some leaders around the table to do, uh, leadership development, to invest in them, to maybe have some of these conversations about racial reconciliation or empowering women. So if we had a group of leaders gathered around the table live, what would you be feeding them? What's either the the dish that you make better than anybody or maybe just your favorite dish. But if we were gathered together right now, what would you feed us? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm going to try to make this quick, but if we're doing breakfast time and Mm -hmm. or kind of like a brunch thing, it's going to be fruit salad. Um, And then I would also do a simple kale salad with uh, a simple vinaigrette and Parmesan cheese, lemon-based vinaigrette and Parmesan cheese. And then one of my all-time favorites, which is almond croissant. So if it's brunch time, that's what we're having. If it is any other time, I absolutely love Mediterranean food. And so I would be making kofta and tzatziki sauce, and we would be having a cucumber salad with fresh mint. And any other time, it would be Mediterranean food. Mm-hmm. Nice. That sounds amazing. Sounds <laughs> amazing. That's always the question that I ask. And then I always end up hungry and I'm like, I should probably find a different icebreaker question 
because this doesn't always go so well for me. Um, that sounds amazing though. And I love, I see a lot of the stuff you post too about some of the recipes that you come up with and the amazing food. So I'm always inspired by your food, but what got you into Mediterranean cooking? Oh my gosh. So yeah, as I talked about doing um, refugee resettlement work uh, uh, for actually kind of my three years at the end of seminary and then just out of seminary doing some volunteering with world relief in the area of refugee resettlement. A number at that time, a number of the refugees coming to the United States were from Afghanistan or Ethiopia and just on their own journeys and from their location in the world, there were either Middle Eastern or Mediterranean flavors. And so I had the phenomenal gift of being able to sit with people and partake of their food, which was deeply connected to um, an expression of love from their soul and Mm -hmm. really just fell in love with the flavors. And the part of me that loves to solve problems and loves to figure things out, wanted to know how to make it for myself. And so just diving in and figuring out how to combine spices and then also learning from uh, these individuals who were my students, but to be honest, they were my teachers because they taught me so much more than I ever could teach them. But yeah, that's where it originated in refugee work. Mm, that's amazing. What a what a beautiful story too. And you know, it it is kind of just a simple icebreaker question because it's the table, obviously. Um, but there's intentionality too behind why it's called the table. You know, the idea being that everyone is welcome to the table, that everyone is welcome to pull up a seat. And not only are you welcome to pull up a seat, but you have a voice. You know, so often we say, oh yeah, we like to give these people a seat at the table but they're not given a voice and they're not given equality or equity at the table. And so that's for me, why I'm so passionate about it being the table. And, and also, you know, with that icebreaker question, it's beautiful, the leveling power that sharing a meal has. There's something, um, you know, humble in that there's leadership and there's servanthood. It's, it's an equalizer when we can sit down and share a meal and, you know, allow one another to, not only be fed physically and and to be nurtured physically, but to be fed through the sharing of stories and the sharing of perspectives. And so there's something really, really beautiful about gathering around a table. So you have especially made that clear. I want to, on that note, um, I I was speaking with a friend uh, who hosts a tremendous number of people in her home every year for Thanksgiving. And they talk about, at at her home, they talk about the ministry of their kitchen. Mm. And every year they gather over 50 people together for Thanksgiving. And I found out the other day that 40% of the people who come, they don't know. They're just strangers who have been invited into their home by friends. They tell their friends, have anyone come here that you know needs a place to be loved? Yeah. And in asking her about the ministry of their kitchen, she said it's based on the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. And how the disciples didn't see who Jesus was until they broke bread with him. Mm. And I That's think powerful. That talk about table fellowship, but yeah. it's the exact same thing. Yeah. That we often don't see Jesus and the other person we're sitting across from until we sit down and break bread with them. Yeah. So I completely agree. I think the idea of what happens around the table, what happens when we break bread together, is that we begin mm-hmm. to see Christ in each other more fully. Yeah. That's good. That's really good part of me wants to start collecting recipes from people too, to put in the show notes, like, Hey, gather your people around the table, break bread, come experience Jesus together and make some of Kim's cucumber (laughs) mint salad. (laughs) Oh, that's so good though. 
Yeah, that was a really good word. So, so now we know what you bring to the table food wise in order for us to fellowship and break bread together and, and truly see one another. Um, what is it that you bring to the leadership table? Yeah, I think that through and through, I am a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And um, if we look at the fivefold ministry gifts, uh, what are they? Shepherd, evangelist, apostle, teacher, and prophet. And I think through and through, I am a prophetic shepherd. Mm-hmm. And so to the leadership table, I bring a deep desire to see people at their core. And from that deep desire, that prophetic part of me that wants to help them move toward fullness. And so whenever I enter the room, I'm always asking what is happening in the lives of the individuals here, what is Mm -hmm. happening in the life of the organization, and what role might I play in helping these individuals or this organization move to a greater place of fullness. That's so good. I want you to speak a little bit too, because so you mentioned the fivefold ministry, right? And that you really Mm -hmm. kind of identify your strongest natural gifting as the uh, prophet shepherd. And so I want you to talk a little bit about what does that mean to you? I think with so many of these gifts, not only have we mistaught for so long that it's only for church employees when it's really for everyone, the entire body of Christ, that every single one of us, every human on earth has this gifting. Now, regardless of what we're doing with it and how we're using it and whose kingdom we're building, that's another story, but that we're all equipped with these gifts. And I think even when we understand that, there's been so much misteaching on what each gift actually is, what it means. I love that you said shepherd and not pastor. So often it's translated pastor. And that gives us this idea that you have to be in vocational ministry when really it's shepherd. But I think all of them have the potential to be really misunderstood. And I think if, if I can share this one particular, probably the most poignant memory that I have of you is we were gathered for, I think we were together for if gathering, we were in Texas with Joe Saxton for that. And we were sharing a hotel room Um, I think you had a different room, but you were in our room and we were all getting ready or something. And later you told us, and I don't remember how it came up, but you were sharing with us and your heart had so been drawn to one of the employees, um, one of the um, housekeeper employees, because you had started this conversation with her and you, and she was Latina and you were speaking with her about her experience and about her fears, especially, you know, cause this was really like in light of with, Trump's presidency, because it was a while ago that we were, um, you know, at If Gathering, it was a couple years ago. And, and so you just immediately bonded with this stranger, prophetically were able to sense the fears and uncertainties that she was having as a Latina with her family in Trump's America. And uh, you just ministered to her in that moment. And so for me, when you say that you're a prophetic shepherd, that moment is one particular memory that I experienced with you that I go back to and say, yeah, I can absolutely see that. But I want to hear from you in your words. And I think it might, I have a feeling that, um, that there's going to be some people listening who say, oh yeah, I've been told that I'm a shepherd or I've been told that I'm prophetic or or, you know, people have seen that in me, or I've taken the, you know, the online test and that's what comes up, but I'm kind of afraid of it. I'm not really sure what it means. I don't really know what to do with it. So how do you process and understand those gifts? And and what does that mean for you just in your everyday life to be a prophet shepherd? Yeah. 
So I think for me, the shepherding part uh, means very simply that I just really care deeply for people, right? Mm -hmm. Like I am someone who often when I, and this is kind of where it pairs with the prophetic a bit, but I think in general, many shepherds have this ability that when you walk in the room, often you feel the tone of the room. Mm. And even if you're engaging with an individual or if you are engaging with a group of people, often you can walk in a room and you feel what's happening in the room and you can't help but feel what's happening in the room and want to respond. And sometimes that feeling is a feeling of disruption and you, you can sense that God is saying, let people sit in the tension, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes there is a feeling of joy. And then sometimes it is a feeling to connect with someone in the midst of their pain. But I think ultimately when we, for me personally, when I look at this idea of shepherding, it's deeply connected with what I was expressing before, which is this idea that each and every one of us have a journey that has done certain things in us right? Parts of our journey have made us strong and have helped us move toward a greater place of wholeness, right? We operate, our journey has helped us operate out of our true selves, where we are most fully who God has created us to be. And then other parts of our journey have challenged us and we've Mm -hmm. developed patterns of behavior that we've had to develop so that we can simply survive. And those patterns of behavior have served us well, right? They're the reason that we're alive right now. They've served us well. They've helped us to get through, through challenging times, but those patterns of behavior might be overthinking or overworking. Those patterns of behavior might be diminishing ourselves in some capacity so that everyone else around us can feel comfortable. Say if we were told in our family of origin that it was our job to make everybody else feel comfortable. And so uh, as a shepherd, I try to look, I see those patterns also where in people's lives, they've been taught to act a certain way and they aren't operating out of wholeness. They're operating out of of what Richard Rohr and others would refer to as their false selves. Mm -hmm. And as a shepherd, I have this deep longing to not only be with people wherever they are, Um, But the shepherd, and as it leans into the prophetic, help them to see the areas where they're not operating out of their truest selves and to gently, with the shepherd side, gently call that forward, say, okay, well, here's the brokenness we know and invite them into a place of new life in Christ, invite them to a place of greater health and operating out of their true identity, their true selves, the true person who God has created them to be. But it manifests differently for everyone. Uh, But I think kind of at its core, the shepherding piece has a lot to do with care. Mm -hmm. The prophetic piece has a lot to do with the ability to see what is right and what is wrong in individuals and organizations. And for me, where the two of them pair, it is always about moving people and organizations toward wholeness. That's good. And you mentioned family of origin in what you were just sharing with us. And I think one of the things that I've, I've really taken from my relationship with you is um, just this move towards a journey of health and wholeness, uh, the healing journey, that journey of, of internal healing, of spiritual healing. What are some of the things that you would say are really key and critical? You know, you've mentioned knowing your gifts, you mentioned um, family of origin, just really processing the journey. What are some of the things, whether it's a practice or a book or whatever it may be that has moved you along on that journey towards healing and wholeness that you might encourage other leaders in? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really good. And so um, I would say, I think critical in the journey, just kind of restating, I think this idea of understanding our family of origin and what patterns of behavior, what patterns of being, especially what patterns of navigating conflict yeah. we, we um, learned in that environment. I think that's those things are really crucial because they do carry with us throughout our entire life. And um, you can, and to be quite honest with anything regarding family systems theory, you could just Google some practical family systems, mm-hmm. you know, what are family systems? What is family systems theory? Yes. You could Google genogram. Um, and also uh, very practically, uh, you know, Peter Scazzaro's uh, emotionally healthy spirituality dives into the genogram and it's, it does a good job of kind of walking through and understanding family of origin issues. But I think any of time we can understand the patterns of behavior for better or worse that were instilled in us at a foundational level, yep. um, it can help us understand the areas where God is inviting us into greater wholeness. Um, in a practical area within our culture, I think it's good for everyone to understand the patterns of communicating that we develop from our culture. Mm-hmm. So any any knowledge re- regarding intercultural communication, I think, is fantastic. Yes, because it allows us to see and to love our neighbor better. And we we so often assume that the way that we communicate or we view the world is right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that when we can engage with intercultural communication, understand that there are different views of time. Yeah, uh, there's con. There are patterns of communicating where a lot of it is based on the context around us, and we mm-hmm. need to piece things together. Or there's, you know, kind of low context, the way Americans communicate more regularly, which is more straightforward communication. Yeah. The ways in which we can understand how we communicate, and that it's not necessarily right or wrong, but it's just how we mm-hmm. communicate. It allows us to connect more fully with others. But I think that specifically within the United States and the history of white supremacy within the United States, Mm -hmm. that when we can understand intercultural communication, it can help us to see the part of ourselves where we have assumed supremacy through the way we communicate and help us to connect more fully with others. So Mm. genograms and understanding our family of origin, um, intercultural communication, and then I um, I think having a stronghold on, or at least asking the question, what are the scripts that have been written about my life that I am buying into? Yeah. What are those stories? What are those narratives? What are those tapes that play again and again in my head that I go back to in times of stress that I go back to sometimes is just a default. And are those actually true? Mm-hmm. Often hear scripts in our heads, for me, I'm um, one of the things I've had to unpack and I continue to unpack from my family of origin is overthinking, overfunctioning, and overworking. Right. You were loved if you could produce, right? Mm-hmm. You were loved if you could perform. And so I always have this script that's pay- playing sometimes really loud, sometimes really low, that my value is placed in what I do. And so I need to be aware of that script. Yeah. And then I need to ask what is Christ saying about me and have that script rewritten. I need to have mm-hmm. a new story rewritten and make sure that old script isn't the overarching uh, plot line of this beautiful story that God is writing about my life. That's so good. And what are some of the um, what are some of the practical parts of your journey that have helped you discover what script was written for you and to rewrite it. I, I'm pretty sure I'm not off base when I say that you're a huge, like me proponent of counseling. 
and spiritual direction. Yeah. What are, are some of the other parts of that journey for you? So for me, um, our parents and our families, and just as we do for our kids, we do the best that we can, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. With the tools that we have. And my kids uh, will have issues that they need to process through with me, with my husband doing the best that we can. But when I look at my family of origin, my mom grew up experiencing just about every type of abuse imaginable. Mm-hmm. And my dad uh, grew up as the child of an alcoholic. Yeah. And so for both of my parents, they grew up uh really fighting to survive and they accomplished some amazing things out of the life that they had. But for me, it said that instilled this idea that um, your work in what you did was kind of your primary place of value. And so I found myself as I was heading into seminary, um, just out of undergrad, feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. By the time I graduated from undergrad, I was only sleeping one hour a night. Mm. and I was involved in multiple campus organizations. And uh, during the summer after I graduated, I took uh, audio and video production classes so I could try to complete putting together a demo reel because at that time I was a media studies major. I was planning a wedding, and I was back at home. And I loved my parents, but it's a significant transition to move back home. And... um, I had been commuting an hour every day to seminary, barely sleeping, exhausted, just kept working. And uh, I woke up one morning and I knew I was too tired to make the commute. And I emailed my seminary professor and I said, there's no way I can make it there today. And his response was not, okay, thanks for letting me know. His response was, well, then you failed my class. And as an achiever um, and someone's identity is in what we do that was absolutely devastating. Yep. And um, I went to my parents for help and they had never navigated, you know, a graduate school before. And my mom's response was, well, what did you do wrong? You know, like, how can you fix this? It was the assumption Mm. that I had done something wrong instead of the professor maybe not caring well in this situation. And, um, and then I went to my dad and I was devastated, you know, because I had, I had a scholarship for seminary and what failing a class meant would be that I could be put on probation at risk of mm-hmm. losing my scholarship, which was the only way I could actually go to seminary. And so I went to my dad and um, he said, well, then you flushed your whole future down the toilet. Mm. And I believed him. Yeah. And so that night, three weeks before my wedding, Um, I waited until everyone went to bed and I went and I took as many, uh, pain meds as I possibly could. And I called my fiance and I said goodbye. He was two hours away and didn't tell anyone that I had just overdosed and I sat and I waited to die. And, um, Mm. my fiance and this, he's a psychologist now, um, but this speaks to kind of his inherent counseling gifts, even from two and a half hours on the way away on the phone could hear something wasn't quite right in my voice. And so he called back and he uh, pressed and pressed and pressed until I told him what I'd done. So I just told him I'd overdosed and he used his God-given counseling gifts and he talked me into waking up my parents. And so I woke up my parents and 
you know, within an hour or so was at the hospital getting my stomach pumped. But that moment's so significant because I, I remember sitting in the hospital at the ER laughing. Um, my sister had come into the room and I was laughing. And I remember feeling like it wasn't okay for me not to be okay. Like it was mm. my job to make sure everyone else was okay. It yeah. was my job to perform perfectly. And after she left the room, um, I, I had this moment where I just was like, how did I get here? How did I get to the place? I'd struggled with depression on and off, but how did I get to the place where even as I'm sitting here, having just overdosed, I'm trying to make sure everyone else is okay? Yeah. And so for me, that was really a significant point in my journey, which kind of really began diving in more deeply to understand what scripts had been written. Mm-hmm. How do I get help? And it started off with counseling. It started off uh, the steps after getting released from the hospital. Uh, were counseling. It meant taking time away from school. It meant leaning into spiritual direction and um, asking deeper questions that helped me understand how I had arrived at this place of believing that the best option was for me to take my life. Yeah. Wow. I just want to, first of all, just thank you for sharing. I don't even, um, I wasn't even aware of that particular part of your story. And so for being so willing to be vulnerable and and transparent with us and share um, something so traumatic is just, we, we don't hold that lightly. And I mm-hmm. want us to really be holding space for your story with, um, with care and with gratefulness for you being willing to share. And I really think that 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 part of your story and that vulnerability is really going to bring breakthrough and freedom for somebody listening. Um, so I just, I really truly believe that. So I just want to thank you first of all for, for that. Um, you mentioned, and, and you mentioned two different things. You mentioned counseling and then you mentioned leaning into spiritual direction. And mm-hmm. I think that's a place for a lot of people where there's some confusion what is, what does that mean? What's the difference? If I'm seeing a counsel, you know, what's the difference between counseling and spiritual direction and who does what and what's beneficial. And, and I have both, I have been involved in, and I'm still engaged in both. I have a counselor that I see regularly throughout the year for check-ins. And then I have a spiritual director as well, but I'd love to hear from you kind of the difference between those two and what they each do. Cause I think there's, there's so many different paths and avenues that leaders can take to really um, begin walking that journey towards their own inner healing and wholeness, which of course, everything we do is from the inside out, right? We leave from yeah. the inside out. And so one of the, the first components um, to actually walking in leadership development is developing the leader, developing oneself, developing one's own journey of healing and wholeness. Because until we do that, we're never, I believe we're never going to be able to actually walk into and operate in the fullness that God has called us to in our leadership. Uh, because that that inner healing has to come first. And so there are so many different avenues that leaders can pursue from having mentors to seeing a counselor to seeing a spiritual director. So in your own words, can you kind of break down and help us understand the difference between the two and the benefit of both of them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that when I look at counseling, um, there are a couple things I, w- I want to say first. I think that the church 
has in some ways vilified, not every church, but some churches mm-hmm. have vilified the idea of counseling. Yes. And as someone who is married to a psychologist and who has been to a counselor, I think that we do an injustice when mm-hmm. we say pursuing counseling in any way is sinful or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of the most egregious things that the church has, has told people about mental health issues is that they're just not having enough faith. Right. That is just BS. Like, mm-hmm. let's just be honest. Like that is just BS. Absolutely. And so when we look at counseling, um, counseling is engaging with a trained professional mm-hmm. who you pay <laughs> to be a neutral ear. Mm-hmm. And it is their job to listen to you and anything it is that you have to say, but the trained professional part of them listens to what you say and they listen for patterns of behavior. They listened for um, wrongful perspectives, right? They listen for pathology. If there is legitimate mental illness or deeper issues there and they help you either through um, speech therapy um, you know, talking through, or I should say speaking, talking-based therapy, they help you either talk through your issues, right? Or they help you access medication if you mm-hmm. need to be referred to a psychiatrist so you can get medication. Once again, uh, medication, another area where the church has done an injustice. Yeah. Um, because sometimes part of our healing is that God has invited us to use medicine, right? Yes. And need that medication. And so- Yeah. Um, A counselor is someone who has been equipped in how we function, how we think, and it is their job and their expertise um, regarding the human mind and ways of maladaptive patterns, excuse me, maladaptive patterns of thinking as well as healthy patterns of thinking. Mm -hmm. It is their job to identify those things, unearth those things, and then partner with us to move through a greater place to a greater place of health so that we can overcome those deeply rooted patterns or dysfunction that we may be operating out of. And again, if there's anything there that's actually medical, like a chemical imbalance, they can often be a great first step in identifying that and then refer us to a psychiatrist who can help us take the next steps. And so I feel like my husband would be like, oh, there's so much more that you could say. It's true. There's so much more I could say about counseling. But in general, I would say That's a fair synopsis of counseling. Now, spiritual direction, one of my favorite uh, definitions of spiritual direction is that the job of a spiritual director is simply to um, listen to God with you. Mm -hmm. That's good. Listen to God with you. And so while a counselor is looking for pathology and while a counselor is looking for patterns of behavior, a spiritual director may have a bent in that direction. But ultimately, a spiritual director is asking, how is God moving in your life? Mm -hmm. How can I help you awaken to how God is moving in your life? And then partner with you on that journey. And so you may have a Christian counselor who will do both of those things to a certain degree, but they'll Mm -hmm. always be on counseling, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And you may have a spiritual director who is listening to God, but is also listening for some family systems things, but in different seasons of your life, you may need one more than the other, but I think what you need is the crucial thing. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, what's so critical for me, especially with so many leaders that I've worked with is that oftentimes as the leader and, and that's the leader of anything, right? I don't care if we're talking about you being the leader of your family and leading your children or the leader of the church or the leader of an organization or a business or a college group or whatever it may be when you are in a position of leadership, which we all are, right? Um, I love how Joe Saxon and Steph 
O'Brien, good friends of ours, talk about the idea of leadership and that leadership is simply influence. And everybody has influence over somebody. And leadership is simply how are you using and stewarding your influence, right? So when we talk about leaders, it's it's not this tiny little slice of the pie of the population. You know, we're, I mean, ultimately it's for everyone. The yeah. value of assigning the specific term of leader for me at least is so that we'll actually begin to walk in it because if we don't believe we are something we're not going to live into it right Mm -hmm. if I don't say I'm a writer I'm not going to write if I don't think I'm a leader I'm not going to steward the influence that I have over the people around me and Mm -hmm. so anyways all that to say um so many of us that are stewarding our influence and walking in our leadership there's people that we are pouring into and investing in. The problem is that there's nowhere where that's happening for us. And I think that's where, at least for me personally, the benefit of having a counselor and having a spiritual director and having mentors is that every leader needs a leader. Every pastor needs a pastor. You know, every, whatever it is, every parent needs a, another parent farther along on the journey than them that they can pour into them. Yeah. And so for so many leaders that are leading in um, positions that does require them to give out a lot, positions of um, high stress, carrying a lot of weight, positions that require a lot from you when you're stewarding your influence at those levels, having these people, I think is a critical part of how we continue to grow and stay healthy. We all need somebody pouring back into us. And for me, some of that has come through mentors, but a lot of that has come through seeking out counseling and having an ongoing relationship with the spiritual director. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of fascinating to me how we do this work in ministry in particular, because the reality is there are a lot of pastors who are pastoring churches alone. Yeah. And even if you're pastoring on a team, you and I know how lonely leadership can be, even when you're pastoring on a team. And so I think that I've really been struck by what I see in my husband's profession as a psychologist, because as a psychologist, when you're going through your training and when you're pursuing licensure, and often even after, you have what's referred to as supervision, mm-hmm. where there is someone that you're always going to to process cases. And yeah. even if you're part of a team within the same practice, often you can process a case together. But as a pastor, you're caring or someone who's a ministry leader, you're caring for people on the front lines, but that structure isn't built in. Mm -hmm. And so you're just taking in all of these heavy things often without um, a good place to process them, especially as you're seeking to maintain confidentiality Mm -hmm. and it can be overwhelming. It can lead to exhaustion. It can lead to burnout. It can lead to compassion fatigue. If you don't have a counselor to go to, And a counselor is a place where you can indeed actually process some of those challenging, confidential things that you might experience in ministry. Um, And if you don't have a spiritual director, someone who is caring about your soul is you're putting in so much energy into caring for the souls of others. So Mm -hmm. yes, definitely, definitely. We need those people who are further down the road and those people whose job it is to be present for us. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's good. It is their job to be present for us. And that is so critical because often as leaders, it is our responsibility to be present for others. And that has to be reciprocated, even if that means that it's, it's a role that's bought into our lives. 
whether it's bought in or brought in. Yeah, that's so good. So you just mentioned something, compassion fatigue, which um, I want to maybe lean a little bit more into that because that's a real thing. So much of the work that you've done with your life, you have uh, reached out to the marginalized, whether you were talking about um, racial reconciliation or working with women or your work with refugees and immigrant populations. Uh, you have always been with the marginalized. And you said a lot of that started when you and Toussaint first met and some of the awareness that he was able to bring to you. And I think any of us who are, regardless of where you are in the conversation, um, of, you know, what is our role to seek justice for those that have been marginalized, whether you're just starting out in the conversation or you've been in it for a long time. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily a new conversation. I mean, even politically in our country right now, this, this conversation has finally been brought to the forefront. There's a lot of work still to be done, obviously, but we're, we're having these conversations and I want to kind of ask you to maybe, if you can, if this is possible in the limited amount of time that we have, can you kind of walk us through some of the different core phases of growing in awareness and seeking justice um, for those that have been marginalized? For example, I know for myself, I can pinpoint the moment that my awareness began to grow Um, and obviously there are places where as a woman, my voice has been marginalized, but as a white woman, um, I carry a lot of privilege and, and I had to become aware of that. Obviously I carry more privilege than most do because yes, I'm a woman, but I'm a white woman. And so that just inherently brings more privilege to the table. Um, and I need to be aware of that and I need to know what to do with that. And I need to know what that means. But I remember when the conversation of understanding um, justice for the marginalized came, it was when I was still a public educator. I was teaching public high school. And Mm -hmm. one of the other teachers at the school, um, just amazing, amazing woman, Mama Wilson, we're still in contact today. And Mm -hmm. she really um, mentored me. And one of the things I remember having this conversation and I had some students who, uh, every so often, every few weeks were just perpetually late to class. And, you know, it didn't matter what we did. It was just, they were going to be late. And I was talking to her about it one day because I was a brand new teacher. I was in my early twenties. And I said, you've got to help me out. Like, how do I motivate these students? What's the problem? Why do they keep coming late? And so she started asking me some questions. Well, who is it? How often are they late? All these other things. And the, um, and Miss um, Mama Wilson, as I call her, she's African-American woman. And it was uh, a few students that I had, um, African-American girls in the same family. And so we're having this conversation and what she finally, and it took a lot of, you know, questioning and going back and forth. And finally, she said, she said, I'm not 100% sure. She said, but I would encourage you to ask them about this. She said, because they're not just going to come out and tell you because you're a white woman and you wouldn't understand. She said, but I would bet you anything that every few weeks, the day that they're late is the day that they're getting their hair done. Mm -hmm. And I said, and I remember thinking, what, what on earth does that have to do with anything? And mama Wilson gave me my first lesson in understanding black hair and understanding the cultural Mm -hmm. significance and understanding the time involved in upkeep 
and maintenance and how important it was and how there was no way they were going to leave home without, you know, tightening their braids up or whatever it may be. They had different hairstyles. And I remember going to the girls and having the conversation and saying, listen, I've been talking to somebody who's been helping bring a little bit of awareness to me. Um, these days that you guys are always perpetually late, Mm -hmm. is it hair day? And I remember them looking at me and, you know, in shock that, you know, I would be able to have that conversation with them. Thank goodness, you know, mama Wilson had helped prepare me for that. And they said, yeah, because of our mom's work schedule. And, and it was, a um, it was a single parent family and mom works nights and weekends. And they said that sometimes the morning is the only time that she has to do it during the week. And so that's what it is. And I just remember saying, okay, will you just let me know when that day comes around and it's not going to be a problem. And thank you for helping me understand. And so something as simple and seemingly insignificant, even though it's not as it being, you know, hair day for them, was really the very first step of my awareness of, wow, I need to become uh, more culturally aware. And it was the beginning of my journey into recognizing my privilege and, you know, what that meant and the world that I truly lived in. Mm -hmm. And then that grew as I was on staff leading at an intentionally diverse and multi-ethnic church, um, where we regularly, routinely would have these conversations. There was so much more awareness that came. And then of course, you know, we got into the season of the shootings. And so anyways, over the years, there's been these different phases of, you know, moving from a place of no awareness to a place of, okay, wow, I'm actually growing in awareness. And then even in that, there's the internal stuff that we have to fight you know, the questions that we have, the pride that we bring, um, all of the different baggage that comes with that, moving to a place of truly understanding, and then actually moving into a place of being able to act, to advocate for social justice, um, and some of the systemic issues that we see in our country and in others. And so as someone who has been walking this journey for a very long time, who I have learned so much from when it comes to the conversation of understanding my privilege and uh, working to be a, an advocate and an activist and um, to really work for social justice, I've learned so much from you. And I think we probably have people listening just from a variety of different places on that spectrum. But what would you say are some of the core phases that we process through. Um, and if you could give one piece of advice to people in each phase from the very first phase of gaining awareness, could you break it down to a few core phases or places mm-hmm. on the journey? And is there a piece of advice that you would give to each one? I realize that's a very huge yeah. ask to make. Yeah. So I'm just going to be really honest right now. There are actually, you know, from a scholar scholarly standpoint, some specific names of phases mm-hmm. that people can go through. And um, right now I'm not recalling the details around those phases, but I would encourage people to do some uh, reading into the idea of critical consciousness, right? Yeah. Um, because you'll see some different steps uh, in that process. Also, another book for white listeners in particular is Daniel Hill's White Awake. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
really takes in a very practical way and, uh, and um, kind of walks people through those steps of awareness and, uh, around whiteness and what that means. And then in general, just a solid book on uh, racial reconciliation, excuse me, racial reconciliation is of course, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil's Roadmap to Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And she talks about these kind of key points where there is a um, kind of a moment of disruption that makes us aware of something. And that's what you described, a moment of disruption where uh, there was a breakthrough and there was something to learn. And so um, while I apologize for not remembering all the specific, you know, kind of scholarly names that can guide us through a step to greater awareness, I think that I would say in general, um, for individuals who are white, approaching the conversation with um, the assumption that you do not know everything and mm-hmm. that your cultural experience is not everyone's cultural experience. Yeah. I think opening up to that idea, I don't have all knowledge. There are things that I can learn and my cultural experience is not normative for everyone. Yes. So I think it's like if you can begin there by just opening up uh, to learning new things, that is a huge part of it. And mm-hmm. so opening I would say. And then additionally, listening. Yeah. There is so often white people respond to racism with the um, overt pushing away mm-hmm. of that's not who I am, you know, and it's just this right. rejection of the idea that anything in me could be racist. Mm-hmm. And, or that it's uh, even a reality anymore that, oh, that's not happening totally. anymore. Not even just in my own self, but in the world at large, oh, you know, it's totally. not the 1800s anymore. Totally. The civil rights movements, right. those laws all, yeah, all, all kind of tie that up with a neat bow. Yeah. And so, I think number one, opening ourselves up to just even the possibility that others have a different reality than ours. And then second is said this idea of listening, which I think is so crucial because so often in our rejection of the very idea of racism, we reject the stories of people who are experiencing it actively in their daily lives. And if I can choose to instead acknowledge, like if I can acknowledge the areas where I'm resisting, and instead of um, following through on that resistance, see it as an invitation for something to be explored. So why is there resistance in me as this person is talking about their experience of racism? What is it that's arising in me? Oh my gosh, like I'm actually questioning if that has happened. Well, why am I questioning if that's happened? And so listening and then um, listening, being self-aware, and then following the questions that emerge. Does that make sense? So opening oneself up, listening, being aware of what's happening in you, and then following the questions that emerge in you and Mm -hmm. asking why, Mm -hmm. why is that showing up in me? But in that process of listening, actually choosing to be open to that person. And instead of leading with a response of resistance, leading with a posture of listening, which says, I believe you. Yeah, I believe that this is your reality. I believe that this is your experience and allowing their words to impact you and mm-hmm. impact your worldview. I like how you pointed out all of the different components that are necessary because it's not easy and it mm-hmm. takes work 
and it takes yeah. intentionality. And I love that you didn't just kind of broad brush stroke paint this picture of, oh, this is what it is. No, it's this and it's this and it's this and it's this. It's listening, it's being aware, it's following those things inside yourself, it's looking at the resistance. And so it is, it's it's work and it takes intentionality, but it's critical. I think too, something else that's that's really coming to mind, something that I'm just kind of sensing right now as we're having this conversation um, is why it's important for us as the majority culture to lend our voices. Because I think, I think there are some that could be watching and listening and think, what are two white women doing having a conversation about race and racism and racial reconciliation? And, and we need mm-hmm. to have diverse voices in this conversation. And yes, we do. We need diverse voices in this conversation. I think the point that I want to make right now is how critical it is for us as the majority culture, whatever that means, whether we're talking about racial reconciliation, majority culture being white, whether we're talking about gender discrimination, majority culture being male, that the majority culture has to come to a place where we recognize, begin to raise awareness, do our own inner work and lend our voices because of the weight that our voices carry. I cannot express, and it's great to have women speaking up for women, but I cannot express how meaningful it is to me when another man affirms my role, affirms my womanhood, affirms my leadership, while also affirming my femininity, affirms my voice, affirms my pastoring. When the majority culture can lend their voice, it is so, so critical. And so I think that's why it's important. And because too, honestly, for those that are in the minority culture, it's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting to have to be your own advocate day in and day out. And so there is a place where we can bring rest and affirmation of what's really going on to the conversation when the majority culture can come in and say, yep, I'm lending my voice to this because what's happening is not okay and it matters. And so I think, I mean, you obviously bring more experience to the table as someone who's in a biracial marriage and you've got biracial children. And so you have some very personal experience, um, personal experience that, that I don't have, you know, but again, yes, we need diverse voices in the conversation about uh, gender equity and racial equity and things like that. Um, but even just as two white women, I think the conversation is still important because we need to be educating one another. I can't tell you how many people of color I've talked to who have said, I'm just tired of having to educate people all the time like we need more white voices doing that work yeah I really appreciate what you're talking about the fatigue there I think one of the things that I really value that Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil has kind of added to her model of racial reconciliation over the last few years is the significance on of individuals who are people of color to have time to step out of and to rest and to be renewed to tend to their own souls and I Mm -hmm. think that I'm always struck by in my marriage and so in watching my children we've had you know the Sion you've walked through some of these seasons with us but you know our our children have experienced a significant amount of race-based bullying like in addition Mm -hmm. to this the I really hate that this is even a reality to say but it's true right in addition to just what they experience socially right Mm -hmm. Um, there's been, you know, extra targeted events that we've Mm -hmm. had to address. Um, and I'm always struck by 
I mean, it's heavy for me to experience. Yeah. It is exhausting for me. My husband and I have had to advocate for our children so much in the schools that they've been in that we actually don't even have to think about it. Like we have a pattern of operating and um, that we just naturally fall into when we go into the school space. And what happens, uh, speaking about this idea of advocacy, what often happens more often than not is that we're entering into a space where the school administrator is white and uh they will will walk into the room and they will often only address me, right? Mm -hmm. My husband and I are there, my husband, African-American male with a PhD. And often they will only be addressing me regarding what's going on with our children. And so we fall into this pattern of behavior where I just sit and stare at my husband um, and I avoid eye contact with the administrator, giving them no other option but to address him. And um, we work intentionally in that moment to press against the power dynamic and Mm -hmm. to shift the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And my reason for bringing that up is because of what you said. I think that as white women, we possess power um, Mm -hmm. in in ways that are unique, often in organizations that we're a part of, where we can use that power and that privilege for good. Yes. And, um, And I say that also acknowledging that we must continue in the awareness of that privilege of power mm-hmm. so that we know also we can help, we can discern also in when um, it is time for us to step back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to, you know what I mean? To let uh, others take over and, mm-hmm. um, and to allow then people of color in our, in our organization to, to lead the conversation. My words are so messy and so faulty, but what I'm thinking about in the midst of this is, um, you know, the, stir- the church I was on staff at for eight years, one of the things I talked about from the beginning and in stepping into that environment was asking, where's our representation of people mm-hmm. of color? Um, how are we addressing racial reconciliation yeah. um, as part of our discipleship process? Yeah. How are we naming it as something which is core to the DNA of the gospel? Right. And um, where are we inviting people to the table? And that journey in those conversations, I had those in rooms that were filled with white people for many, many years, mm-hmm. um, seven years to be exact, until the church was at a place where they said, yeah, we believe that we need to engage in this conversation fully. And so what began as we engaged in that conversation was then a partnership between me and my best friend, who's an African-American female. And we began co-leading these discussions and this endeavor forward. And that co-leading happened for about six months. And then it got made it very clear Kim, it's your time to step out and it is her time to lead this fully. The church is at a place where they can receive her leading fully. Yes. And, um, and, and so she is, and she's thriving. And um, I feel like the wording is so messy around this. Um, I think, you know what I mean? This part Mm -hmm. will probably have to be edited out, but um, I just want to be so careful with the wording because at no point was I giving her permission to lead. right? Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but intentionally investing in her leadership, yes, helping those around me to see she's a phenomenal leader, just yes. let her be. and securing a platform 
Right. That's for it. Her. Securing, securing a platform that yeah. she deserved to be on and needed to be the one leading and speaking from. And mm-hmm. your work was to, to build and secure that platform. Yeah. To make sure that Absolutely. she had that foundation there. Absolutely. I think that's a yeah. great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I love it. Oh, there's so much goodness. So one of the things that strikes me about the work that you've done um, that you continue to do. And I want to make sure before we wrap up that we mention this, cause I, I want to direct people towards it. Um, you are a person of peace. You seek peace uh, through justice and through your pastoring and through even just your prophetic gift. Um, and so I want you to share with our listeners a little bit about your podcast that you have your own podcast, which is very exciting with your good friend. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you guys do and what your heart is um, for those that want to pop over and start following and subscribing to you guys there. Talk to us about that. Yeah. A couple years ago, a friend of mine who is from the Dominican Republic, uh, we'd actually partnered together in the work that we were doing with single teen moms. We'd actually done that residential ministry together. And we found ourselves around the time of the elections, um, the last elections, hearing so many of our friends be very discouraged and Mm -hmm. feel like they had no power to move toward change. Mm -hmm. And we believe foundationally, I believe foundationally that we're created in the image of God. Right. And as those who were created in the image of God, we have been given the power to uh, transform systems. We've been given the power to bring hope, justice, grace, mercy, and peace into wherever we enter into. And I think that when we watch the news, it is so easy to get bombarded with the negativity and to feel like we are absolutely powerless, to believe the lie that we are powerless. And so we had been watching the news and seeing all this horrible stuff with white nationalists and, um, and, and then just listening to people in our own lives. And we, we really believed that at the end of the day, whether it was an extremely distorted view of what it meant to pursue peace, or if it was a very healthy view, that the core driving desire is that individuals and their family would have a sense of peace. Mm-hmm. And so we started this podcast, the Pursuit of Peace podcast, to have some discussions around what does it mean to pursue peace or biblical shalom, which is moving people toward completeness or moving people toward wholeness in their own lives, in the communities where they live, and also even systems of injustice. How do we help move systems of injustice toward a place of justice? And so uh, that is our desire with the podcast, to have conversations looking at the pursuit of peace or the pursuit of shalom in every sphere of life and then giving people practical tools by which they can do that. And you can find us uh, on Instagram at the pursuit of peace podcast. You can find us online at the pursuit of peace podcast.com. And uh, yeah, we have some shows out there in our, it's our hope that you feel empowered to move toward peace in your own life. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I think I want to, I mean, I obviously am, am going to be part of it and I want to include, uh, just encourage everyone to go to check it out, to subscribe, to listen. Cause I think, I feel like for those who are listening, 
who uh, say, gosh, I want to continue this conversation because so much of what we talked about today, I mean, covered so much, but I think this podcast is really just sort of a beautiful, like weaving together of all of the different threads of your life, the work that you've mm-hmm. done, your own journey, um, the the stuff we talked about regarding personal healing and health and wholeness, the justice work, all of that really does weave together in the pursuit of peace, the pursuit of you know personal internal peace, the pursuit of relational peace family peace, peace within systems. Um, and so if there's, you know, anyone that's listening that says, gosh, I love what I've heard today and I want to hear more, you need to be following the pursuit of peace podcast, especially, uh, the way that you guys are, are going to give practical applications, um, on every episode. I just think that's, that's where everybody needs to be. So definitely I want to encourage that. And I know there were a lot of amazing resources mentioned today, um, roadmap to reconciliation, the book wide awake, uh, emotionally healthy spirituality, emotionally healthy leadership. We will have all of that in the show notes. We'll have links to all the resources that were discussed today. We'll have links to the Pursuit of Peace podcast for anybody that wants to subscribe and follow along there. So make sure you check out the show notes for sure. Um, and we'll capture all of that there for you. Uh, Kim, I just want to thank you so, so, so much for being here today and for being with us and and just sharing your heart so openly and vulnerably. There was so much truth and wisdom and goodness in what you said. Um, And I know it's stuff I'm going to be continuing to chew on for a while. And uh, I hope that all of our listeners found something that resonated with them that they can take away. And um, I'm sure that I and just echoing all of their hearts when I say thank you so much. It's been a joy to be here. Always good to see you again. We need to get in the same room again to share coffee in the same room. And maybe some Mediterranean food. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I will come brave the Chicago weather just to have some of this amazing food that you talk about. So, <laughs> well, Kim, thank you so, so much. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Table Leadership Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the resources that were discussed at the table today and to connect with today's guest, Kim. Remember to subscribe to the Table Podcast and follow along on social media at The Table Leadership. Visit thetableleadership.com to learn more about current courses and coaching opportunities. You can connect with me, your host, at cionedgerton.com or on social media at cionedgerton. I look forward to the next time that you pull up a seat at the table.